Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today. Hey, my name is Tim Clemens, and let me just kind of add in some ways my um, word of public thanks to God for uh, the work that he's done in Michael Fatal's life this week. Uh, some of you will know the Fatal family, others of you won't. Uh, Michael has cystic fibrosis and uh, received a second double lung transplant during the week, and so uh, remarkable intervention of God to make those available, and so uh, just very thankful for that. But it, in some ways, does uh, raise... So that's all happened during the week as I'm reading this passage. Um, and I guess it, it raises a broader topic for us, which really is that one of my responsibilities as a pastor... Um, I don't need that yet. Thank you. Uh, ...is to preach and teach in such a way that you are prepared to suffer well. To preach and teach in such a way that you are prepared to suffer well. Uh, some of you have already suffered. Um, I, I don't exactly know what that's looked like for you. I, I can't pretend to imagine to know what it's like for you. Others of you are in the midst of suffering right now. Uh, for some of you, I know your story. Others of you, I don't. Others of us maybe haven't suffered all that much just yet. But the one thing we all have in common, irrespective of where we find ourselves on that spectrum, is that suffering is in our future. Uh, it's one of the tragic realities of living in a fallen and sinful world, is that suffering is never a matter of if we suffer. It's always a case of when we suffer. The tragic reality is, though, that a lot of churches will avoid this issue. Uh, maybe they do it for a few reasons. Sometimes it's because they've bought into a false triumphalism that says if you have enough faith, then you can overcome sickness and suffering in Jesus' name. And so while they might talk about suffering, it's usually in the context of miracles and faith healings. And while there's absolutely a place for praying for miracles, and again, we'll come to that later on, Sometimes when that's the whole focus, little to no attention is given to, well, what do we do if it's not God's will to heal some person in this situation? At its worst, and some of you know this from personal experience, uh, some churches either imply or, or kind of explicitly teach that actually if you don't get healed, it's on you because you've had a lack of faith. God was willing to heal, but your lack of faith meant that he didn't come through for you. There's one reason uh, churches don't always teach well on suffering. The other reason, or another reason, is that it, it kind of is a bit of a downer. Uh, let's face it, talking about suffering and sickness is, is sad, it's depressing. Uh, oftentimes people want their experience of church to be a little like coming to a spiritual equivalent of a Tony Robbins event. You know, you sort of want to come made to feel uplifted and good about yourself and told that you can achieve your dreams because God is with you. Again, there is room for spiritual encouragement. But my goodness, if, if we avoid the topic of suffering, it's not only foolish, it's also spiritually and pastorally negligent. See, suffering is going to do one or two things for you. Uh, it's either going to refine our faith and accelerate our Christian walk, or it's going to derail, derail our faith and quite possibly destroy our Christian walk. Bible describes suffering like a furnace. If you have gold faith, then it will be refined. If you've got straw faith, it'll be burned up. Uh, churches that don't prepare their people to suffer well are sending their people into the furnace of suffering with straw faith. They don't stand a chance. And so, Grace City, again, I kind of just say we need to talk about suffering because suffering is a tragic reality of life. 
Uh, I know this both personally and pastorally, and frankly, with every year that goes by, I, I seem to f- see, not just every year, every month, and sometimes it feels like every week, I'm reminded of it more and more. Um, I guess what, what I've noticed uh, over that time is that sometimes when you're in the midst of suffering, all you actually want is the spiritual equivalent of a breakup song. That is, you actually just need permission to sit in the pain, in the sadness, to cry your heart out, to feel numb, to feel bitter, to feel angry, maybe a combination of all of those. And actually, the Bible gives us permission to do that. The Bible says, mourn with those who mourn. And so it gives voice to some of our feelings in that moment. You know, the, the book of Psalms, the book of Job, actually just allows us to sit in the pain and the hardship and gives voice to the suffering that we often and the grief that we feel in these times. But in the midst of the sadness and the suffering, we also need hope. And not the trite and triumphalistic truisms of just have enough faith, but actually the confident expectation that it's not always going to be this way. That there is hope, that there is hope for restoration and healing, and that one day we're going to live in a kingdom where there is no more sickness or suffering or death. And that's what today's passage gives us. It's a passage that gives us hope. And so what I want to do with you this morning is simply work our way through the story. It's a beautiful story. It writes itself. It tells itself. So you'll know me. I like a structure. My structure today is work through the story. And then we'll finish just by quickly answering the question, to what extent should we expect miracles like this today? So that's where we're going. Uh, Have your Bible open. We're in Luke 8. And starting at verse 40 in just a moment. But Luke, as he begins, he introduces us to this guy named Jairus. But to remind us of the context, Jesus is just returning from a trip in a boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It was a quick trip uh, while he was over there. It was quite an eventful trip, I should say. While he's on the way over there, he calms a storm. While he's there, he cures or casts out a guy, uh, some demons out of a guy. But it's a quick trip because within a short space of time, he's coming back in the boat, back to the region that he's just come from. And so we start with our story in verse 40. We read now. When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Uh, Because of the miracles, Jesus has become a bit of a celebrity in this region, and so this really is the ancient equivalent of all the fans waiting outside the pop star's hotel room, waiting for him to come out again. And so I want you to imagine all the people, uh, they're on the beach by the Sea of Galilee, they've seen him go that way and they're waiting for him to come back. And so they're sort of sitting there, waiting there. And then they see the boat in the distance. Everyone stands up and the excitement is building. Maybe they get out their foam hands and start waving them. This is exciting. But then I want you to imagine, we're not told the specific details, but, but Luke just, he introduces us to this guy named Jairus. And from what we know of Jairus, you can sort of imagine Jairus sort of um, pushing his way through this crowd getting to the front of the crowd to make sure that when Jesus arrives on the shore, he's the first one that he speaks to when he does. And so we keep going, verse 41 and 42. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Most synagogues were ruled by a small group of elders, 
Uh, so Jairus would have been a man of standing in the community, highly respected, highly honored by those in the community. But on this occasion, all the pomp, all the dignity has gone out the window because his little girl is sick. Uh, she's 12 years old, uh, so the kind of age that Steph just said she's dealing with, you know, six, year six, year seven at high school. I said, you know, he just falls on his knees and begs Jesus to come and heal her. It's important to notice uh, Luke says she was dying. Uh, sometimes when we use the language of dying, we use it slightly imprecisely, or, or we use it to mean you know, someone's maybe they've got months to live, sometimes even years to live. No, they're dying. Uh, when a doctor uses the language of dying, particularly in the emergency room, for example, what they mean is that someone has a matter of minutes and they have to interact quickly or else this person's going to die. Uh, Luke is a doctor. The guy telling the story, he's a doctor. And as we'll see, when he says that this little girl was dying, he means something closer to the second usage of the word. Jairus' daughter is at death's door. And so we're supposed to get a sense of urgency from Jairus. Right? He knows the time is short, and so he's begging Jesus, Jesus, will you come, my little girl, will you come and heal her before it's too late? The problem is the crowds make that process painfully slow. And so in verse 42, we read, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. I'm sure you've been in crowded situations before, uh, maybe at peak hour trying to get on a train down at Green Square Station, or maybe trying to leave a stadium after a big game. Uh, sometimes the crowd is so big that you can't really control where you're going. You sort of just get dragged along in the current of the crowd as it moves towards its destination. The thing is here, most of the people aren't going to a destination. Jesus is the destination. And so it's not really going anywhere. Uh, at the risk of being irreverent, it, it is kind of like you know, a Justin Bieber trying to get from A to B while all the crowds are just trying to get a piece of him. As you go on, you kind of get the impression that Peter's functioning like the security detail, trying to clear the way as Jesus is trying to head to this little girl's house. I said, but just put yourself in Jairus' shoes for a moment. When you're in a hurry, every minute feels like an hour, doesn't it? And so you can imagine Jairus just in this moment, the anxiety for him would have been rising. What's going to happen to my little girl? The frustration would have been rising as well because whether these people mean to do it or not, they are getting in the way of Jesus getting to his little girl. The thing is, Jesus doesn't seem all that bothered by it. Uh, I was speaking to a friend about this yesterday. He kind of drew my attention to it. He said, you know, it, it's interesting. Jesus never seems to be in a rush in the Gospels. You ever notice that? Like you never see Jesus running. He's never in a hurry. Instead, uh, he, he, he's always calm, he's always caring, he's always moving at what we might call the pace of love. That's the pace of Jesus, the pace of love. And sometimes that pace may, like here, seem painfully slow, perhaps even irresponsibly, maybe even deadly slow. And yet, as we'll see in a moment, Jesus always does everything for a reason. And so if we're willing to trust him, then we have no need to fear. But we're going to leave Jairus here just for a moment, biting his nails, stressing his brain out. 
because uh, at this point in the story, Luke introduces us to another character, and uh, we meet her in verse 43. It says, And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. In contrast to Jairus, this woman is unnamed. She's just a woman. Uh, and that's actually a number of kind of a few interesting and actually important contrasts between this woman and the synagogue ruler. And so, for example, the synagogue ruler, Jairus, well, he's got a daughter who's 12 years old. This woman has been sick for 12 years. She's been bleeding. Now, literally, uh, it is she has a flow of blood for 12 years. And so it's, she's not just a hemophiliac who you know, doesn't clot properly when she's cut. Uh, it's some form of abnormal uterine or menstrual bleeding. And secondly, unlike Jairus, she's not well off. Now, we're not told that explicitly about Jairus, but he's a synagogue leader. He's an elder in the community, so he's certainly doing better than her. Uh, Luke here, all he tells us is that she couldn't get healed, but in Mark's account, he tells us she's actually spent all she has on doctors, and rather than getting better, she's gotten worse, and so she's not only sick, she's also poor. Again, unlike Jairus, she's a religious outcast. According to Old Testament law, there were a number of things that would make someone ceremonially unclean, and a woman's bleeding was one of those things. Now, to be unclean is not to be sinful. Uh, sometimes, both for men and women, it was unavoidable. Uh, but what it did mean is that you couldn't enter the temple. And so for 12 years... With this constant flow of blood, this woman has been unclean and unable to worship God in the temple. So she's a religious outcast. She's also, fourth and finally, again, unlike Jairus, a social outcast. Now, I do want to be careful here, because I doubt everyone knew about her condition. By which I mean, she wouldn't have been able to hide it from everyone, but for the most part, she probably looked just like anyone else, maybe exhausted, Maybe kind of a little timid, but she's not a leper. No, people, people aren't running from her, I suspect. And yet you have to imagine that the shame, the embarrassment, the hopelessness she lived with for the last 12 years has just chipped away at her sense of worth, her confidence, until all that's left is a sad and mostly silent, secluded woman. Uh, this is not the kind of woman who thrives in a crowd. She doesn't want to be the centre of attention. And so she sticks to the shadows, uh, generally tries to keep a low profile. But on this occasion, she's willing to risk attention for one last attempt at healing. So we read in verse 44. She came up behind him, that's Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Now, we know she's not just trying to yank on his coat to get attention. Uh, Mark's version of this account gives, her her th gives us her thoughts. She thinks to herself, if I can just touch his cloak, then I'll be healed. And in what must have just been a miraculous, a, a beautiful moment of joy and relief and gratitude, that's exactly what happens. She touches his cloak and immediately the 12 years of hardship and suffering come to an end and she's healed. The thing is, uh, that joy and relief, those emotions were probably only short-lived. Because uh, look at what happens next, verse 45. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, 
The people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Now, I've been fascinated by this moment all week. See, let's ask the question, what exactly is this woman hoping for? Did she want to encounter the healer, or did she actually just want the healing that he offered? Well, at least to begin with, she seems content to settle for the healing alone. Now, I don't say that as a judgment on her. It's probably all she thought she was worthy of, maybe not even that. Again, she, this is no Jairus. She doesn't want to bother Jair, uh, Jesus. He doesn't get in his way. He doesn't be too presumptuous. Jairus, he's a synagogue leader. He's the kind of guy who's happy to sort of barge his way through a crowd and say, hey, Jesus, come and help me. But she, she's a different kind of woman. She's just content to maybe just stay in the background, try and touch the edge of his cloak, and then maybe slip back into the crowd. What's fascinating to me, though, is that Jesus wasn't content to let her do that. And so he says, who touched me? Now, just so we're clear, he knows the answer. He's not asking a question so much as he's extending an invitation. He wants her to come forward and identify herself. But you notice, she actually declines the invitation first time around. Did you notice that? Again, when I first saw this, I was kind of stunned by it. Luke tells us, when they all denied it. Now, maybe she stands there and denies it along with everyone else. I suspect probably everyone else denies it and she sort of just remains silent and hides a bit in the background. Probably, as she thinks Peter is going to come to her rescue. I'll come to that later. Why, why, Why doesn't she speak up? Well... As we've already established, she's ceremonially unclean. And so uh, we know from Numbers, if you want to look it up, Numbers 19, verse 22, uh, if she touched Jesus, then as an unclean person, Jesus would become unclean. And by touching all the people in the crowd, they're unclean as well. So at at least theoretically, that's what's supposed to have happened. Now everyone's unclean because of her. So she probably wants to remain silent. But also, secondly... Her particular sickness is not the kind of thing you really want to announce in front of a crowd, is it? It's like when you go to the pharmacy and the pharmacist says, hey, what can I get you? It's like, it's okay if I'm after cold and flu tablets, but there's some stuff I just don't really want to announce in front of everyone else in the shop. She probably just wants to keep a low profile. So then Peter chimes in. And at that point, she probably thinks she's gotten away with it because, you know, Peter is like, Jesus, come on, everyone's around. But Jesus is getting, no, no, no. It was a certain kind of touch. I felt power go out of me. And so in the end, she knows the game is up. And in verse 47, we read, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And how she had been immediately healed. The poor thing is literally trembling, shaking as she falls at Jesus' feet. Probably thinking, you know, what's he going to say? Is he going to scold me? Is he now unclean? Is he going to tell me off? But the response is beautiful. Verse 48, then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. It's a beautiful response. Uh, I think there's... At least two things going on. 
the first with that is that he's publicly validating what she's done and restoring her social standing. So that is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus ever calls someone daughter. He calls someone a daughter of Abraham or a son of Abraham. This is the only time he says someone daughter. Now, maybe it's just a matter of you know, polite etiquette, but I suspect something more is going on. Because think about it, in the sight of everyone else, this is an unnamed, unclean woman. And yet, publicly, Jesus heals her, cleanses her, and then gives her the name daughter. Again, this, this is a restoration. This is a, a validation of who she is and her social standing. Uh, reflecting on this moment, Rebecca McLaughlin writes, Any shame we women feel around the physical realities of femaleness must melt away at Jesus' words. The one who has numbered the hairs on our heads also knows every drop of blood in our bodies. Instead of humiliating this woman, Jesus validates her. And so it is a beautiful word of validation to this poor woman. And yet it's also a word of salvation. See, this is less obvious in our English translations, but when Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you, he's literally saying your faith has saved you. In other words, she's not just going to walk away from this experience healed, she's going to go away from it saved. And that's important. That distinction is important. You see, Jesus in his earthly ministry, he didn't just come to heal people of their physical sicknesses. Actually, physical sickness and its presence in our world is a sign of a deeper problem, a greater sickness, a sickness of the soul that all of us have called sin. That is why Jesus came, and that is what Jesus wants to heal this woman from. But to receive it, she needs to do more than just tug on the corner of his robe. Uh, to receive it, she needs to bring her shame to his feet and confess her faith in him directly. That's what she does. And so Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Now, on the off chance, some of you are like, oh, I think you're reading too much into it. I'll give you a quick Bible commentator. John Nolan says, Only in the personal turning of the healed one to Jesus does this event reach its goal. And only then does Jesus speak of her faith. The woman's salvation here goes beyond her physical healing, embracing as it does the peace now being eschatologically bestowed by Jesus. His point is that the woman, when she walks away from Jesus, doesn't just walk, he says, go in peace. He doesn't just walk away with a peace of mind, but peace with God. So my question to you is, do you have that yet? Do you have that? Do you have peace with God? See, some of you are here today because you want healing. Uh, maybe it's physical healing, uh, maybe it's mental healing, maybe it's emotional healing, maybe it's some other healing in some area of your life. But there's a sense in which you're a little bit like this woman. You're hoping to stay in the crowd, hoping maybe if I come along, I can pull on Jesus' robe, get some power, and then leave. Now, the truth is, while there is no guarantee, that may actually happen for you. Uh, Jesus is clearly powerful enough to do it. The thing is, Jesus wants to give you something more than that. At the end of the day, Jesus' physical healings were actually a sign of his power and authority to bring about a greater healing. Uh, he doesn't just want to heal you, he wants to save you. 
save you from sickness and ultimately from the eternal death. The thing is, to do that, you need to come out of the crowd, fall at his feet and actually confess both your sin and your faith in him. Now, that might look like a physically identifying yourself to someone after the service. Feel free to come and speak to me or anyone, a friend you've come with today. But it might just look like after the service, staying where you are, praying on your own in your seat. But my encouragement to all of us is don't just settle for searching for a surface level healing. Identify yourself to the healer of souls. Confess your faith in him and then walk it out, out of this room today like the woman. Uh, not just with peace of mind but an eschatological peace, a deeper peace, a greater peace. A peace with God that will carry on into eternity. Because we don't just need a healer. We need a saviour. And the purpose of this story is really to point us to the one who can do that for us. Well, let's come back to Jairus. Because remember, Jairus, where we left him, is sort of biting his nails, just stressed out, what's going to happen? Gosh, my little girl. How do you think he's feeling now? Right, like, hands down, his daughter is in a far more severe physical condition than this woman. Uh, if both of them today arrived at a hospital at the same time, the woman would be asked to remain outside in the waiting room for the next four or five hours, like triage, she's lowest level. And that little girl is going straight through the curtains, going into an operating room or seeing doctors straight away. Today, what happens here would kind of be described as medical negligence. Her condition is not a matter of life and death. She's bleeding for 12 years. It's a chronic situation. A couple more minutes isn't going to hurt her. But those few minutes have hurt Jairus' little girl deeply. And so in verse 49 we read, While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. You can imagine the scene, can't you? At the very moment that this woman is hearing those precious words, daughter, your faith has healed you. Jairus is hearing the words, your daughter is dead. Uh, he's not going to react to that quietly. Uh, I imagine his knees buckle and he falls to the ground for the second time that day. Uh, even if he feared the worst, hearing the worst... And confirming it is still going to hit him like a truck to the chest. And imagine what's going through his mind. What's he thinking about Jesus? Jesus, why? Jesus, you knew she was dying and yet you walked. And what's more, you stopped for this. You could have come back to her. But you waited and now my precious little girl is dead. What the heck is going on? But in that moment, verse 50, Jesus comes back and Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. Grace City, many of you already know this from experience. 
but for those of us who don't, we're all going to have our own version of that moment. Um, uh, it may not look exactly like Jairus's, and hopefully the bedside manner of the person who's delivering the news to you is better than it was for Jairus, but most of us are going to have a moment where our worst fears are confirmed. And when it happens, uh, you're going to ask all sorts of questions. Why? What's going on? How could this possibly be part of the plan? Jesus, if you'd only acted sooner, this could have been prevented. Why? What is going on? Do you even care? Uh, whether you're going through it now or it comes for you in the future, this is when all of us need to hear those words. Do not be afraid. Just believe. Now that's going to be hard. So hard. Because part of, part of trusting in Jesus also includes trusting in his timing. Those two things go hand in hand. It's trusting that he knows best, even when everything looks like a mess, even when you don't understand, actually precisely when you don't understand. Because as we'll see now, he is able to bring good out of evil, to bring life out of death. The challenge for us is we're not always going to get the proof of that just as quickly as Jairus did. But the same word still applies for us. Do not be afraid, just believe. Let's come back to Jairus, verse 51. It says, When he had arrived at the house of Jairus... He did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Uh, it would have been quite a scene. As Jesus arrives at the house, the friends and family are in the street. They're all wailing. Jesus says, you know, stop it. She, she, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Now, the reason ever, that's a, not a diagnosis, it's a prognosis. He's telling us what's going to happen. She is dead. But the point really is that Jesus is trying to help us realize, actually, um, for Jesus, waking someone from death is no more challenging than waking them from sleep. And so in verse 54... We read, but he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Can you imagine being the parents? For years, they've woken their little girl up from sleep. Maybe they sit on the bed, they squeeze her hand and say, sweetie, it's time to wake up. And here Jesus, maybe, we don't know, maybe he sits on the bed next to the body of their dead girl. Uh, and she's fallen into a sleep that they can't wake her up from. But Jesus can. And so he grabs her by the hand and says, my child, get up. And then in the sight of everyone, she stands up. Would have been an incredible moment. So verse 56, her parents were astonished, as they would be. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, the parents', the parents reaction there is understandable. But the command to silence is kind of a little surprising, isn't it? Uh, particularly given what he's just done. He's just healed a woman from bleeding publicly out in the crowd. So why the command to silence here? 
Well, uh, we're not told, but I'll give you my guesses. And there's maybe, maybe two reasons at least. First, I suspect there are practical reasons. See, the more people heard about Jesus' healings, the harder it was to preach, which is actually why he came in the first place. And so if you go back to Luke chapter 4, uh, what you see there is that Jesus spends this whole night healing people. He's exhausted by the next morning, so he goes off and tries to spend some time alone. But then the crowd comes to try and find him. And when he says, hey guys, I've actually got to go and preach somewhere else, they, they literally try to prevent him from going anywhere. And you can understand why. They wanted to set up a clinic and be the GP of Copernicus. I like, how good would that be? Having Jesus, you know, um, he bulk bills, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, sorry, we've got doctors. He, there's a gap thing. That's okay these days. <laughs> get out, get out, get out. Um, where was I? But Jesus says to him, look, no, no, no. I'm a, I can heal, but I'm a preacher not a healer. That, that's why I've come. I need to go somewhere else to the others and preach the kingdom of God there as well. And so again, I, I suspect that's partly why he wants them to keep this particular miracle quiet. Like the last thing he needs is people digging up their dead and bringing the bodies to Jesus. It's just going to make the mission even harder. So he says, keep it quiet. But the second reason I suspect is because there are pastoral reasons. And church ministry... Uh, there's this little phrase, you know, what you win them with, you win them to. What you win them with, you win them to. It's kind of an encouragement to pastors. Don't settle for gimmicks to grow the church. Grow it on the gospel. Because what you win them with, you win them to. Maybe a similar thing could be said of Jesus' ministry. The miracles. Because plenty of people came to Jesus for a miracle. Either they wanted, to, they wanted a show or they, they wanted healing but they ultimately came for the healing and not the healer, which creates a certain kind of follower. Uh, in the end of chapter 9, uh, in a few weeks, uh, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, hey, you, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Here's what it looks like. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, if you've come to Jesus for the miracles... That's going to be a hard pill to swallow. What do you, what do you mean, deny myself? To, you're trying to prepare me for a life of suffering? I came to get healthy, wealthy, and wise, thank you very much. And so again, I suspect he's tapering down the miracles because in the ministry of Jesus, the miracles do play a key function, but they're more like the entree and not the main course. Yes, they draw you in, they, they get your attention, but the focus is always supposed to be on Jesus, the one who's the healer, not the healings. And to draw us, to inspire us, to motivate us to put our faith in him. And so maybe just before I close, it, it is worth asking yourself, have you done that yet? Have the miracles done that for you? Between this week and last week, we've seen Jesus demonstrate his power and authority over nature as he's calmed the storm. Over evil forces as he's cast out the demons. Over disease as he's healed this woman from her bleeding, and even over death as he raises this little girl from the dead. In other words, Jesus has demonstrated his power and his authority over everything that could reasonably inspire fear and doubt for us. So don't be afraid. Just believe. And in particular, believe in him. Trust in him as the one who was sent to bring salvation to a lost world. Let me close.
And as I close, I do want to return to the question of miracles today and the extent to which we can expect or should expect miracles in our lives. Because after all, the full quote from Jairus or to Jairus is, do not be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. To what extent should we expect that last little bit for us too? Well, let me suggest a few principles. I'll give you five. Number one, Jesus is more than capable of healing you. That much is abundantly clear from the story. It doesn't matter whether you're important like Jairus or the bottom of the social ladder like the woman. Jesus makes no distinction. And what's more, nothing is beyond his power, whether it's a chronic condition like the woman's or something as seemingly final as death. All Jesus has to say is be healed and it will be, it will be so. So he's capable. Second, the Bible commands us to pray for healing. Uh, James 5 is a very good example of this. Uh, in my role as pastor, I've often been asked to pray with those who are sick and dying. Uh, and what's more, without going into the details, I can think of at least one, maybe two, specific examples where, honestly, there does not seem to be any other explanation than a miracle has happened. God has intervened, and frankly, all the doctors thought they were going to die, and they continue to live today. We're commanded to pray for healing. Third, it's not always God's will to heal someone. At least not this side of heaven. Just think it through. I severely doubt that this woman was the only one wanting healing on that day. But as far as we know, it's only her and the little girl that got healed. Why? Well, we don't know. But sometimes God's answer to your prayer for healing will be no. Think through that little girl. She's raised back from the dead. But she's going to die again. She's one of the few people in the history of the world who dies twice. I suspect second time around, her family are praying for healing. That time, the answer is no. It's not always God's will to heal someone. We will all, unless Jesus returns, we're all going to die. Fourth, faith won't and can't force God's hand. As I said at the beginning, sometimes Christians teach or seem to imply that if you have enough faith, then God is almost required to heal you. That's rubbish. Faith, God is not a piñata in the sky, and your faith is not a stick, such that the bigger your faith, the larger the stick, and you can hit him and get more healings. It doesn't work like that way. Some of you have been deeply hurt by teaching that says... You or someone you love isn't getting healed because you don't have enough faith. It's not true. Uh, fifth and finally, Jesus is still good and supremely trustworthy. Why? Because while he never promises healing in this life, he does promise salvation to all who trust in him. And that is a salvation in the kingdom of God, which these miracles were all a preview of. Right In the miracles, what he's actually doing is peeling back the curtain on where he's taking us. To a kingdom, a world with no more suffering, no more sickness, no more bleeding, no more death. 
Grace City, the message of the gospel is not Jesus is a healer, but that he is a complete healer. He is a saviour. And so, yeah, he healed these two women, but that's not what saved them. What saves them is what he still had to do. He still had to go to the cross. He still had to bleed for the woman. He still had to die for that little girl. At the end of the day, that is what would win their salvation and guarantee their place in the kingdom of God. It's the same for you. So will Jesus give you a miracle? Well, he can. He wants us to pray for it. So can we be a church that prays for miracles, that believes that God does give miracles? But more than wanting healing, he wants us to want the healer. He wants us to not be afraid and just believe so that one day he might say, my child, get up and into the kingdom that I have prepared for you, which will never end. Let's pray together. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus so clearly reveals to us that he has been given the power and authority by you over everything that might inspire fear. And so we pray when we are tempted to fear, help us to push through that fear and trust and have faith knowing that even though we don't always know why, even though things may not make sense to us, one day we will understand. One day things will be made right. And so may we be a church that suffers well, that is refined in the fire rather than being destroyed by the fire. Help us to have golden faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.